The sounds of success vary from person to person. Over to second in time on the first double play. Success sounds like this to a Credenz soybean grower. When you pick Credenz, you get a precise variety that fits your field. A variety built to work in your soil type and conditions with targeted traits for local pest and disease pressures. Earning the satisfaction of a successful soybean crop, that's smart. Talk to your authorized Credenz retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us as we wrap up another week. Thanks for letting us be part of your day. What a busy week it has been. Here's what we're going to talk about today. Arlen Suderman from INTL FC Stone will join us. We'll talk about harvest. We'll talk about trade news, and we'll talk about market outlook going forward through this harvest season. Gene Miller farms in the St. Joseph, Missouri area. He sent me a video yesterday. They're really uh, able to get out and cut some beans and not have to deal with mud right now. So we'll get a harvest update from Gene a little bit later on. We're also going to get an update on African swine fever. Christine McCracken, Senior Animal Protein Analyst for Robo AgriFinance, will join us to give us an update on the African swine fever situation and what it means for the U.S. pork industry. But right now, we're going to start things off with Jerry Hagstrom with the Hagstrom Report. Jerry, thank you for joining us. wanted to get into a couple of stories that we haven't talked much about this week, but are, have certainly become big stories, uh, kind of old stories brought back again, uh, one of them being another battle over the SNAP program, school lunches, things like that. Can you give us an update on what's going on with that? Uh, well, yes, I can, uh, especially since uh, Brandon Lips, the uh, USDA official in charge of nutrition appeared before two uh, subcommittees on Capitol, uh, Capitol Hill this week. Uh, basically, the USDA released information that if it follows through on its proposal to cut back on what's called categorical eligibility for the SNAP program, which used to be called food stamps, um, there, there will be about a million children uh, whose access to uh, to, to school lunch will become more complicated. Um, the largest number of them, about a half a million, a little less than that, will retain the access, but they're going to have to fill out more paperwork. Under categorical eligibility, if their family is getting uh, some other kind of, getting SNAP benefits, they don't have to fill out the, these forms. Um, and then some, some, uh, uh, some other children um, will uh, lose access to the free and reduced price meals. They'll they'll have they'll just have to pay the uh, full price, whatever the local community uh, is charging. So Democrats are very uh, upset about this. Um, I haven't heard anything from ag groups, but certainly if we if it means that fewer children are eating school lunch, uh, that isn't good for the purchases of the commodities uh, for the school lunch program. This was such a big issue back during the farm bill, and it kind of got put off uh, or separated out to be dealt with later. Is this the result of that decision? Well, yes, but it didn't really get put off uh, to be dealt with later. In uh, in Congress, uh, they uh, the the final farm bill did not make the changes that the Republicans wanted to the SNAP program. Uh, but now, the as the Democrats say, the administration is trying to do uh, through administrative action what the con what the Congress did not uh, did not do. 
so, uh, you know, it, it, there's been a lot of opposition to this, but we are still in the rulemaking period. Um, they have reopened the comments uh, due to this new information on what the impact would be on school lunch. Uh, and so we'll, ha we'll have to see if the administration really follows through on this or whether there's enough opposition to stop or get this rule modified. All right, so it is an ongoing issue. Another ongoing issue, and USDA has been um, before Congress defending their move of those research agencies from Washington, D.C. to Kansas City and getting uh, uh, the staffing positions filled. What are, what's the latest on that? Well, there are enormous, enormous vacancies. Uh, uh, as, as much as three-quarters of the employees not in these uh, agencies because so many people refuse to move to Kansas City, to refuse to have their lives disrupted. Uh, but I noticed in the, in the House Agriculture Subcommittee hearing yesterday that the Democrats are changing their tactic. They've accepted the move. There's nothing more they can do about it. USDA has made this decision. So now their emphasis is on you've got to get these agencies up and running. They've got to do their reports. And we are going to be watching the administration to see uh, to see if this happens. So it's an ongoing effort to try to get those positions filled. And as you said, uh, right now, a lot of vacancies. Yes, yes. If, if there are people with the qualifications, uh, they should apply. You know, USDA is hiring in Kansas City. But, of course, the government hiring process is kind of slow. Uh, and USDA is asking for permission to do hiring uh, faster, uh, but I don't think they've gotten that from the Office of Management and Budget. Of course, the head of the Office of Management and Budget, Mick Mulvaney, has said that this was a way to cut government. So I have real questions about whether all of these positions will be filled. Uh, at the same time, you, you know, the, the Trump uh, budget called for cutbacks in some of these uh, uh, areas, uh, saying the, the, that uh, they didn't, that the government didn't do to do the same research that the universities do, and so I'm 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 still a little uh, concerned that not all these positions will be filled uh, in the long run. And another issue that keeps coming back and could impact uh, getting a, a spending deal done. That's the funding of the border wall. That issue could impact uh, getting uh, that that spending deal. An agreement on that coming up here, uh, what, next deadline is next month, right? Uh, uh, yes, uh, November 21st. Uh, the, the, you know, that's when the current continuing resolution expires. Uh, on another spending issue, I'm beginning to wonder if the agriculture departments are going to have enough money to do everything that people are expecting out of this disaster aid. They only got $3 billion for the whole country. And now they're, uh, they're talking about aid for some of these farmers in the, in the plains where there's been snow this, this winter that, or this fall that may make it difficult to harvest. To me, $3 billion just doesn't go all that far, uh, especially when you're supposed to be also helping people in the south who have had problems with the t hurricanes, et cetera. So I'm wondering if, if people aren't going to start talking about that. How far can you spread $3 billion? Yeah, that's an ongoing challenge because you're still trying to catch up with past disasters, and while you're trying to catch up, more are happening. Yes, that's right. Uh, now, one big breakthrough yesterday in the House Ag, this House Ag subcommittee hearing 
is that Scott Hutchins, the Deputy Undersecretary in charge of research, used the term climate change several times. And the Democrats, particularly Shelley Pingree from Maine, uh, praised him for that uh, and said it was a recognition that USDA was acknowledging uh, the the re- issue of climate change more than uh, some other uh, federal agencies. Uh, and so uh, maybe we're going to see more from uh, USDA on that. Uh, Hutchins also maintains that USDA is working to help farmers, despite some reports that say uh, USDA isn't doing much on climate change to help the farmers deal with it. Yeah, that's a story to watch for sure. Jerry, thank you very much. Good to talk with you. Always good to talk with you. Take See care. You. Jerry Hagstrom with the Hagstrom Report. Okay, Jerry, thank you. Uh, up next, an update on African swine fever. It seems to still be spreading to other countries. How's it being addressed, and what does it mean for U.S. pork producers? We'll talk about it next on AOA. Adams on Agriculture, brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Some measure success by Italian suits, corner offices, and luxury yachts. Farmers measure success differently. It's breathing fresh country air, taking care of the people you love, and knowing how to measure success in your soybean acres. That's smart. With Credenz soybeans, you get a precise variety bred to fit your acres. And that Credenz variety comes with agronomic expertise and local insights from your BASF team. So plant your sign of success. Talk to your authorized Credenz retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Adams on Agriculture is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. With Cenex Premium Diesel, you can count on a diesel that will keep your operation in top shape. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Let's get an update on African swine fever. Joining us now is Christine McCracken, Senior Animal Protein Analyst for Rabo AgriFinance. Christine, thank you for joining us. Uh, what do we know about the, the latest outbreaks? Uh, is it still showing up in more countries all the time? It is. Um, you know, we get more and more cases, I'd say, in a lot of the countries that are impacted already. We continue to see it uh, break in parts of China, despite uh, re- recent reports to the, the contrary. We uh, have seen it go now into South Korea, uh, from North Korea, where it's believed to be spreading quite rapidly. Vietnam continues to see uh, outbreaks and has lost over half of its herd. Um, the Philippines, unfortunately, recently was hit and, and has lost uh, quite a bit, and it continues to move into new parts of the Philippines, which is quite difficult to do given the geography. But, um, you know, it, it is moving, unfortunately, throughout most of Asia and, and even in Europe, uh, where we continue to see outbreaks in parts of uh, Eastern Europe, um, particularly in Hungary most recently. So, uh not not solved by any means and, and is continues to be a problem we know there's not a vaccine for it so what are the methods being used to try to stop it well really the only thing you can do is is obviously uh, eliminate the the affected animals so whether it's wild boars where they're doing some controlled hunts uh to to 
uh, try to control it in the wild boar population like in Europe um, or in Asia where they need to actually just uh, obviously stamp it out in, in that herd. Um, you know, ideally you'd like to clean it out of the barns, clean out the barn and let it sit idle. The issue is that uh, rather than, than let these barns uh, sit open, they, they have gone back in. The economic incentives are huge. Uh, right now, and they're they're actually adding uh, pigs as fast as they they can. Now there aren't a lot of available, um, you know, pigs for repopulating uh, these barns. So in in some cases, there's a natural limiter, but uh, you know, you really need to let those barns sit idle in order to uh, let the virus uh, get cleaned out, and, and they aren't doing that at this point. Do we know how the virus is spreading? country in Europe it's spreading a lot uh, through the wild boars like like I mentioned um, in in some cases like in East Timor where it was believed to have been brought in um, with with a tourist with a movement of people so you can bring uh, the the virus in with meat um, you might have seen Australia just deported a Vietnamese mm-hmm. tourist uh, for bringing meat products in uh, through through customs now that's not uh, legal, as we all know, but it happens on a daily basis. So that's really where a lot of the effort's been put to try to slow down or stop the movement of, of product through the, the borders, um, you know, being brought in with people that maybe knowingly or unknowingly uh, are bringing through infected product. That's that's part of it. Of, of South Korea, for example, it, it likely was being brought uh, across the border from North Korea uh, just with uh, either a, a wild animal, um, a, a wild boar, or, or possibly a, a rodent. Um, it, it's unknown at this point exactly how it gets in, um, but there are a number of vectors that they're trying to, to control. We're talking with Christine McCracken, Senior Animal Protein Analyst for Rabo AgriFinance. Christine, that's why... Uh, all the increased security methods that we have in place now in the United States are so important because of all these different ways it could get in. So you have to do everything you can to try to keep it out. They sure do, you know. And and you know, our our associations have been working with Customs uh, and Border Protection to try to tighten up those that that movement of product, um, try to make people aware. Um, of exactly how dangerous that is, not just uh, not to humans. This is, again, ASF has no human health impact, but but to our industry, it would clearly be devastating. So you know, in as much as we can all be a part of that enforcement effort, I think that that's pretty critical. And then, really, um, controlling the movement of people on and off the farm, um, and and trying to avoid that as much as possible. Obviously. Um, there are exceptions, but I think the industry has done a good job um, putting kind of procedures into place to try to, to really make people aware of, of how ASF could spread on farm. Again, they've been able to keep, uh, you know, a lot of diseases out of the U.S. because we have very strong biosecurity, um, and, and this is no different. Um, we just have to control the things we can't control. So, um, you know, it, it's a group effort. But I think we're doing as much as we can, and I'm, I'm hopeful that we can keep it out of the U.S. What is the situation as far as you know it in China? We've heard conflicting numbers about how many 
animals they've had to kill. Uh, we we hear now of them trying to repopulate. What is the situation in China? Well, no one knows exactly for sure. What I can tell you is that we have um, we do have operations in China. We have a team in China that works regularly with producers, and what we know. Uh, is that they continue to break with ASF. Our current estimate on losses um, is about 55% of the herd. Again, that's that's almost a quarter of the world's pork supply has been lost already just in China, and it continues to move, as I mentioned, into Southeast Asia and within China. So big losses uh, for the global protein industry. And, and again, um, you know, it's hard to estimate. Uh, the numbers in China have never been very good, and the reporting hasn't been very good. Um, I would say that the government itself is looking uh, at about a 41% drop in the number of pigs, um, and that's the Chinese government. Uh, so, you know, I think our estimate is, is closer to the pin, but no one knows for sure. Now, we've heard about them drawing on their reserves. Do we know how much they've done that, and how long can that last? Well, again, these are tough numbers to get. The Chinese don't share uh, a lot of information. But what we what we know is that they've been drawing down those reserves um, and restocking them on a pretty regular basis. I think a lot of us were su- surprised just how large those inventories were. Um, again, they did call a lot of animals uh, through the spring uh, that that built some very large inventories. Now, they've had a a couple of big holidays here this fall, the Mid-Autumn Festival, and and you may have seen just, uh, I guess now two weeks ago, uh, you know, the big Golden Week celebration, which is a big pork consumption period for them. So they've drawn down those inventories pretty pretty aggressively, and and that's why um, not only did they release some reserves um, so that it could keep the pork prices somewhat reasonable, I guess, during those important port-consuming periods. Uh, but they've also drawn down inventories generally just because uh, they essentially went through a lot of that pork product uh, in, during the holidays. So now we're looking at uh, very low inventories and, and just a, a massive escalation in price. Prices went up just 20% in a week uh, over in China post-holiday. And now we're building up for the Chinese New Year. So we'll see now. Uh, what happens with with inventory so low, uh, production obviously depleted, uh, we should have a very robust uh, export period for U.S. Uh, exporters. That was going to be my next question. Depending, of course, on how the trade situation plays out with these trade talks, uh, what do you see as the opportunity here for U.S. producers? I mean, can they, can they turn somewhere else? You know, with soybeans, they turn to Brazil. Uh, can they... T- uh, can they turn and find enough pork uh, in other markets, or will they have to come to the U.S., you think? Now, you know, they've been coming to the U.S. They've been importing a, a pretty massive amount. Exports to China are up almost 500% year-on-year, and now that's on a smaller base. But still, we've been shipping quite a bit of pork already. The question is, can we export more? And I think the answer is, is clearly yes. It's, it's a huge, huge deficit that can't be made up by any of, of the combined countries. Just to put it in perspective, um, you know, you're looking at almost a 25 million metric ton deficit of pork. And global pork traded on, on an annual basis is really only about eight to all countries. 
So even if we shipped everything we had on a global basis to China, it wouldn't be enough. Um, that's why they've imported more chicken um, from Thailand and from uh, parts of South America, including Brazil. They've imported a lot more beef from Australia and uh, from Brazil and Argentina. So they've, they've been importing products from around the world. The big question now is will they open up uh, to U.S. products, and, and we're hopeful. All right, Christine, thank you for the update. Sure thing. Christine McCracken, Senior Animal Protein Analyst for Robo AgriFinance, joining us here on AOA. Cenex Premium Diesel comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn to optimize performance in all engines. Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Hog futures at the Merck held lower throughout yesterday's session. Traders viewing developments in the U.S.-China trade talks with skepticism. Net export sales of U.S. pork rose to 292,200 metric tons in the week ending October 10th, driven primarily by purchases from Mexico and China. Mexico purchasing 132,400 tons, China buying 94,000 tons. Export sales of soybeans remain strong this week, totaling 1.7 million metric tons, according to USDA, owed mostly to the 850,000 tons sold to China for the week ending October 10th, according to USDA. New crop November soybeans closed slightly higher on Thursday. December corn eking out modest gains on Thursday. The corn uptrend remains in place, according to the Wire Talk. This week's retreat to 387.5 appears to mark out a minor corrective pullback phase. An hour into Friday's session, December corn at 390 and three quarters, down four. November soybeans up four and a quarter at 935 and a half. Minneapolis spring wheat, December down three and three quarters, 548 and a quarter. Chicago wheat December steady at 525 and a half. Kansas City December down three and a half at 428. Live cattle futures December contract down 97 cents 113.40. Feeder cattle November down a dollar at 143.32. Lean hog futures December down a nickel per hundred weight at 68.10. On Wall Street, the Dow down 52, S&P down 3, November crude oil up 19 cents. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson for the American Ag Network. The sounds of success vary from person to person. Success sounds like this to a credence soybean grower. Along with 43 new varieties this year, credence soybeans come with agronomic expertise from BASF. That means expert advisors who bring local insights on seed selection, management decisions, and crop protection options. Knowing the kind of success you're shooting for? That's smart. Talk to your authorized credence retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel, a more complete additive package for a more complete burn. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. 
commodities economist for INTL, FC Stone. Arlen, good to talk with you again. Let's let's start things off on the business side, what we're selling, what's moving. Uh, China's making some purchases, right? Uh, uh, how significant are they? Well, I think the one the thing that really stands out is the uh, pork sales in this morning's export sales report. Uh, that was really big when you look at what it purchased, which blew away the previous week's record, added on to now Mexico looks like it's getting scared and, and stepping up as well, unless we get a correction from USDA on that number. Um, but overall, the sales this last week of 351,000 metric tons is equal to 1.2 times one-week slaughter in the United States, just to provide a little bit of perspective. So uh, we thought that with the export sales to China would really pick up in the fourth quarter, the fourth quarter's here, and not only the sales, but the shipments are really starting to ramp up now, and the other customers that buy from us are getting concerned as well. Things are getting bad in China as far as the meat supply, and it's starting now to affect the U.S. markets. Now, this should be good news, right, for the U.S. pork industry? It, it really should be good news. Uh, the inter other interesting factor about it is we see more packing plants go to the hormone-free uh, meat in order to meet China's qualifications for imports. That's going to start drawing down the efficiency of U.S. production because the hormone certainly does improve our efficiency. So what happens if we get this increased demand and then a decline of 1% to 2% on efficiency uh, of production due to loss of efficiency? That could tighten up the balance sheet even further. But is all of this uh, overall big picture a signal to U.S. pork producers to expand? Well, we certainly expect that the market's going to give that signal. We expect things to continue to ramp up into 2020. China says that they're going to go back to normal production next year, and frankly, we don't see how that can happen unless they could very quickly come up with a miracle drug. We've lost a lot of hogs throughout Asia as well. It's, it's throughout Vietnam. They've lost 20% of their herd according to official numbers, and they're encouraging farms to immediately restock. And what we've seen in China is that uh, they should take six months to really clean the facilities and get rid of the virus. But the tremendous margins now that are approaching $400 per head are just too tempting. So they're restocking within about a month or so, and they're having about an 80 to 90% re-outbreak rate at trying to do that. So an in the ripple effect here, increase in pork production here, means increased de feed demand, right? Yeah, absolutely. Now there are obviously limits on how quickly our industry can expand. Uh, there's infrastructure limits. There's certainly slaughter capacity limits, et cetera. So that will put somewhat of a restriction on. But as we see U.S. pork prices start to reflect the increase in demand, we would anticipate we'll see some consumer shift to beef and poultry supporting those industries as well. So if we see higher beef and poultry prices, those sectors would also be looking to increase consumption. And this comes at a time now when we're harvesting a corn crop and test weights are really starting to fall off, particularly where we had the freeze in the growing season. But even some of the early planted corn, we're seeing disappointing test weights. That means that we have a lower starch content generally in the kernel. And we have a lower starch content. That means that uh, livestock producers have to feed more corn in order to get the desired rate of gain. And ethanol plants have to grind more corn in order to get the desired volume of ethanol. 
and you increase demand. We saw this certainly play out after the 2009 crop uh, with record usage in the third quarter of that year, according to the stocks reports. And I'm looking for something similar again this year. Whether it be in third quarter or not, I can't tell you. But I am looking for that to influence demand. What about protein levels in soybeans? Well, as we go into any plant, the first thing it lays down is the protein, and then it adds the starches and oils around it. So on the soybeans where the frost, uh, the freeze cut the season short, we would expect it to be lower in oil. Fortunately, soybeans were, further, were more along because they're more day-length sensitive and we're pushing toward maturity. So not as big of a portion of the crop was vulnerable when the freeze went across the Midwest. Um, but that means all those smaller beans. So I do still anticipate it overall this year. We'll be looking at a lower oil content, but I think the protein should be there. Same thing on the corn. We should have the protein there, um, but just not the starches. And uh, oil content could even be affected on some of it as well. We're talking with Arlen Suderman with INTL FC Stone. Arlen, here we are, uh, mid-October, and still struggling to really get a handle on on this year's production. We really are. Now, <clears throat> it, I've made it clear that I believe that the crop's going to end up smaller than what USDA says, and I think notably smaller. And so I can take courage from looking at 1993 if we have a, a similar decrease in yields after the October report that we saw in 1993, that would argue for something closer to 158. But in 1993, we had uh, about a 2.8, I believe it was, bushel reduction in the corn crop in the October report. And that's what I would have expected this year as well. So that argues against my point of a significant reduction. I think that as we start factoring in the freeze damage, which we knew that a good portion of the crop wasn't going to make it ahead of the freeze, and get into the later corn, I do think that we're going to see those yields come down. There is still room within the system for that to happen. When USDA took samples for their October report, 79% of the corn crop was excuse me, 71% of the corn crop was too immature to just simply use the weights. They weighed corn that was dented, dried it to 15% moisture, and so adjusted the weight and then modeled what they thought based on previous history what the weight should be if it would be mature. So that assumes a normal maturity and dry down process and this year's dry down and maturity process has been anything but normal so there is still opportunity for those lower yields in there that i've been anticipating i'm still kind of sticking with that expectation and we're going to move closer to that 160 level but we'll see maybe the data will prove me wrong so we have just talked about Increased demand and lower production. So what are we setting up uh, price-wise and going into next year? Well, a lot of it comes down again to what will the China trade um, deal include. Um, in the week prior to China being here, we know that they were inquiring about prices, just trying to get their data, inquiring about prices for corn, wheat, and and obviously soybeans and pork, but also ethanol and DDGs. So 
we can make some assumptions in there that there will be some notable quantities. We've heard to hear even this week chatter about the, that China needs one to two million metric tons of good quality hard red milling wheat. Um, if those, in fact, those um, commodities are included, then that in and of itself elevates the, the sense of the funds to take prices higher, to be a part of that. Without that China trade deal coming in and including any corn or wheat specifically, um, it would take a, have to take a significant yield cut um, by USDA to really justify a sustained rally. However, depending on the size of the purchases, if that were a part of it, you could be looking at 50 cents to a dollar. Here again, it depends on the size of the purchases and how much USDA cuts the size of the crop if they do. Remains to be seen. There are tariff issues still to work out and a lot to get done. But when they started, the president started talking about $40, $50 billion of sales to China. Uh, Are those realistic numbers? Well, it can happen. You can't rule it out. But for it to happen, uh, one thing it would be obvious, it would have to include a lot of meat, which it appears now that they're including, and it would have to include much higher prices to get that value up. And they're probably looking at value of it at their port, so it would include freight as well. Um, it's still a pretty tall order. I think the previous record was uh, north of $29 billion. So mathematically, it is theoretically possible. And they did say that's what it would ramp up to on an annual basis over a couple years period of time. But I think there's some things that really need to happen to escalate prices to to get to that target to make that happen. I think it was his uh, salesmanship personality coming through. A lot, though, seems like it's they're, they're still looking at not just a truce on tariffs, but an actual reduction on tariffs, right? Well, that's the end goal. I think that's the end goal of both the United States and China. China obviously would like our tariffs taken off immediately. The the, the media out there seems to ignore the fact that the reason we put ours on was because of all the tariff and non-tariff barriers that China has had on for years. Uh, One of the things getting very little press, though, is this agreement reportedly does include removal of a lot of those non-tariff barriers. So that would really help. But ultimately, for the private buyers to buy from the United States, we need to see the tariffs reduced um, on China's side. And, of course, China wants to see the U.S. reduce. And so this is a ways to get to that end is to see both sides reduce their tariffs. In the meantime, the state buyers have been buying most of what's been bought to this point, we believe. They can continue to do that. Sinograin is the largest reseller inside of China. So they can start continue to do that. They can per- make good purchases. That can't happen without the private buyers. But ultimately, we'd like to see it freed up without those trade barriers, let the private buyers access our markets as they would like, and uh, be competitive on the world market. All right. Lots of good information. Thank you, Arlen. Good to talk with you. Thank you, Mike. Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for INTL FC Stone. Meanwhile, uh, harvest rolling on. We're going to get a report from the St. Joseph, Missouri area. Gene Miller checks in next with the harvest report. Stay with us on AOA. The sounds of success vary from person to person. Success sounds like this to a credence soybean grower. Along with 43 new varieties this year, credence soybeans come with agronomic expertise from BASF. 
That means expert advisors who bring local insights on seed selection, management decisions, and crop protection options. Knowing the kind of success you're shooting for, that's smart. Talk to your authorized Credence retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Adams on Agriculture is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. With Cenex Premium Diesel, you can count on a diesel that will keep your operation in top shape. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Now we're joined now by Gene Miller, who farms in the St. Joe, Missouri area. Gene, you sent me some video yesterday. You're cutting beans, and I had to look real close, but I I didn't see any mud in that picture. Is that right? Uh, amazing. It was absolutely awesome. I couldn't believe it. No mud yesterday. It really started drying up. But I tell you what, Mike, we have fought mud. Uh, three inches of rain on the 20th of September was we were just getting rolling right good in corn harvest, and that really that really set us back. Those cornfields just don't dry out very fast after being totally saturated anyway, and then get three inches, and, and then temperatures in the 50s instead of 70s or 80s. So, yeah, we're, we're uh, we had to do the power wash on the combine one pass through when I went through the farmstead here a couple of days ago. All right, so let's we'll go back to corn. Uh, how much corn do you have done? Uh, we're finished. Uh, we wrapped up corn Good. last last week. Uh, last weekend we finished corn and switched the combine to the bean header and went right to the bean field. So there was no lapse in between. Uh, it was just a, a battle to find find dry places to run, and uh, so it was. It was kind of a struggle, and we left ruts in places, but knowing how it is that it is, it's not likely to get a whole lot better, so we'll have some work to do next spring, that's for sure. But mm-hmm. just glad the corn harvest is over with. And and were you surprised at your corn yields? Uh, yes and no. Uh, it was so highly variable, Mike, and some varieties obviously stood wet feet better than others. As uh, we had one, you know, pretty decent field uh, right across a, a driveway from each other, and one side was running in the 140s, 150s, and a lot of, uh, uh, well, pretty wet spots. But just on the other side of the driveway, at a different variety, it was running in the 180, 185, 186 range. So, you know, that's really good yields for for this area. We're not Illinois like you are around Jacksonville. We're over here. your test weights test weight was uh good uh 56 57 i think we had one load that went over the scale of 58 uh we were glad to get it out and we had some contracts to fill and we're kind of nervous you know when it stayed wet for so long whether we're going to be able to at least get that in but that was handled and uh, same way on the soybeans the test weights are good moisture you know, got down in the 11, 12, 12 and a half range pretty consistently. Yesterday morning, it started out 
you know, in the 13 and a half to 13 eight on the, on the moisture sensor. But I said, it's time to get going. Of course, sun was shining a little breeze yesterday, so they dried right down. So we're, we're pretty pleased with the test weights and, and the moisture conditions. Finally, uh, the yield again on soybeans, highly variable. And so I was in a field yesterday that was really an excellent field, uh, with, you know, the yield monitor, we'd be hitting 60s every once in a while. And then I needed those drown-out spots in the terrace channels, and all of a sudden, you know, it really drops your average pretty fast. But overall, uh, we're, I'd say, average, a little above average on, on, on bean yield, but certainly not anywhere near what we had in 2017. Gene, you, uh, of course, are also, you're in the ethanol business uh, there at Craig, Missouri, the yep. Golden Triangle. at uh, Kind of describe what it's like right now. We've talked a lot about the renewable fuels industry, and this is a tough time for the for the industry. Uh, tell us about the the situation, what you're seeing business wise there. Well, uh, we're really fortunate. Uh, our little uh, cooperative uh, started the cooperative down at LLC with Golden Triangle. We have about 200, 296 farmer investors in the plant, and uh, it started as a fuel plant. But in, back in two thousand six. Seven, uh, we made the strategic decision to make a conversion to be a boutique, uh, high-quality ethanol facility, and so that we only sell about 15 of our output as fuel. But that fuel, uh, being so depressed, is really it really sucks the margin out of our or our higher margin products. So uh, it, it's just a, a an ongoing issue. I've, I've been listening to your guys that dealing with the. Uh, EPA and the heel dragging, and they think they have a deal, and everybody's really happy with the deal. All of a sudden, nah, it's not a deal, and uh, there has to be some some resolution at some point. But uh, it's certainly kind of frustrating that that we can't follow up what the law the way it was written. Your decision at the plant to diversify has certainly been a good one. I know you feel for those other plants that have had to idle, cut back, uh, lay people off. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, think of it as, see, we're all farmers uh, or farmer investors and corn producers. And so anytime that you have a, a, a shortage of demand in any sector, it's going to really influence overall uh profitability as far as the farm is concerned and we've been you know lulling along here for the last couple of three years in the in the threes for corn prices we have a basis that's a little better this year than it has been but uh, we're not in a positive basis by any stretch in our part of the country but you know it, it's just sad that uh, we can't you know get some consensus and have a stability in that marketplace exports offer i think a lot of potential but uh, that is a whole other can of worms that has to be resolved. Well, Gene, thanks for the update, and uh, uh, wish you the best in wrapping up harvest, and I'll see you soon in Kansas City, okay? See you in Kansas City, Mike. Have a nice All day. Right. Appreciate it. All right. Take care, Gene. Gene Miller, he farms in the St. Joe, Missouri area. With that, we're going to wrap it up for today and for the week. I'm going to be on vacation next week. Uh, you'll be hearing from Rusty and Sabrina, and you'll hear from me once in a while as well. Um, and hope you'll tune in and join us right here on AOA. Thanks for being with us today. Have a great weekend, everyone.
Cenex Premium Diesel comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn to optimize performance in all engines. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Thousands of people contact InventHelp monthly about their invention or new product. Do you think companies would be interested in your idea? Do you want to try to get a patent? Call InventHelp now. Best of all, the call and information are free. InventHelp keeps your idea confidential, explaining every step of the invention process. We create professional materials and submit them to companies who are looking for new ideas in your category. We have more than 9,000 companies who have agreed to review new ideas in confidence. If a company shows interest in manual Manufacturing your invention, we can negotiate on your behalf. We have helped over 10,000 clients receive patents. We offer 3D modeling and animation, prototyping services, and we use state-of-the-art technology to present client ideas to additional companies. Join people just like you who made the call to InventHelp. You have nothing to lose. The call and the information are free. Call 1-800-213-4556. That's 1-800-213-4556. Again, 1-800-213-4556. 